Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. These are the words of God. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when the perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. In this letter to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul actually deals with several Issues, several issues, I believe, of great importance. The very first one that he deals, the very first one that he brings up is a kind of uh, man-made spiritual pedigree where people were saying, well, I follow Paul and others, I follow Apollos and still others, I follow Cephas and yet again more trying to trump it all by saying, well, we follow Jesus. All of this revealed something very important uh, about the people of Corinth, and that is that they were operating in, um, in their fleshly man. They were operating in the physical, and they weren't listening to the spirit man that was in them. Uh, it, it is always true if we are, um, if we are trying to one-up another person because of our spiritual pedigree, because of the person that we listen to, the person that we follow, the, the place that we learn from, it is always true that we are thinking with the flesh and not with the Spirit. We are thinking when the, with the Spirit when we yield all of our knowledge, all of our wisdom, all of our everything to the Lord of creation. Amen? So... These people dealt with that as a struggle. The next issue that Paul dealt with uh, was a particular sin issue, something that was so, uh, according, uh, according to the scripture, that was so heinous that even the Gentiles didn't participate in this kind of sexual sin. Okay, And I'm, I'm going to leave it at that, but I want you to picture this in your mind. When Paul says the words, it doesn't even exist among the Gentiles, the, the term Gentile is, is interpreted according to the scripture in one place as those without God in the world. That means that in the church, there was sin that was, that was so heinous that even those without God in the world wouldn't touch it wouldn't participate in it. Now, there's an important lesson, I believe, inside of that. I'm not going to spend too much time on it. But I believe the important lesson is that even in the church, we can deal with some pretty brutal sins, some pretty serious things. But the God of all grace, who saved us by his mercy, doesn't leave us in that sin. He calls us to walk away from it. And so the Apostle Paul, the same Apostle Paul that talks about grace, uh, like no other writer in the New Testament, tells this person that they are to be 
removed from the church, the first form of excommunication in the New Testament. They're removed from the church so that their, their life would be turned over to the enemy so that their soul might be saved in the end. The church is going to deal with hard sins. We're going to deal with pains and sins that, that even maybe the world doesn't participate in. But it is our responsibility to call those out and to see people walk in holiness, right? That is our call. So the first one was that spiritual pedigree. The second one was a sexual sin. And then moving on to this, Paul deals specifically with a group of people that were suing each other uh, in the public arena. Christians who were suing each other in the public arena. They weren't wise enough to, or they, they maybe were just operating too much in their flesh, but they, they were said to be not wise enough to be able to judge their own cases, although they should have been wise enough to judge their own cases. And so the Apostle Paul shames them in a certain, uh, in a manner of speaking. He shames them because this actually brings, um, brings about reproach on the gospel. When, when, we fight among the, when we fight among each other in front of the world, the world looks at it and says, huh, bunch of hypocrites, a bunch of jokesters. They don't, they don't actually believe what they say or whatever. Now, I told you last week that we need to fight through even though we're called hypocrites because truth is truth is truth. We may be messed up people, can we say that out loud? We may be messed up people. Actually, let's just change that. We are messed up people. <laughs> you guys jumped on it before I even had to correct it. But we are messed up people. This is true. Um, but we have to proclaim the truth. And we have to hold one another to that particular truth. Their issue in operating in the flesh was that they were taking these issues before the world. It's just such a bad uh, a bad rap for the gospel. So we need to be careful about this. But one of the most, if not the most critical issue that Paul addresses in his letter to the Corinthians was a group of people that did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They did not believe. Maybe they once believed in the resurrection of the, de of the dead. It is my opinion that they believed in the resurrection of Christ, but that they didn't believe that anybody else was going to raise in this, uh, in this particular way. We could talk about that for hours. But the issue that Paul addresses in not believing in the resurrection is so important that Paul writes some of the most sobering words of warning to the New Testament believer. Paul says that without the resurrection, this is verses 17 and through 19, Paul says that without the resurrection, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. You should underline that. Your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. But here's the more staggering and the more humbling correction from the Apostle Paul. It says, if there is no resurrection, if we have hope, now underline this in your Bible, it's so important. If we have hope in Christ in this life only, if we have hope in Christ, but only in this life, we are to be pitied more than all men. Have you ever thought about that? You have hope, and it's in Christ, but it's only in this life. That's a pitiable way to believe. That's staggering, isn't it? It's staggering. So Paul offers this correction. Seeing that this is a foundational belief for, uh, for Christians, for Paul to warn them so, uh, so fiercely, uh, I think we ought to look into it. Today, what I want to show you is not only that we must believe and proclaim in the resurrection of Christ, but we must believe and proclaim in the resurrection of the dead. 
We must do so, uh, and I'm going I'm to communicate a couple of whys on why this is so important. But I hope to show you today, uh, out of three whys, one of the most important whys you're ever going to hear. One of the most important whys you're ever going to hear. It's only through the resurrection that we will find, and you can write this down, it's only through the resurrection that we will find meaning in all of life's toil, It's only through the resurrection that we will find meaning in all of the pain that we face. And it is only through the resurrection and the hope of resurrection that we will have the energy, the determination, the the fear to put all sin to death inside of this life. It's only through the resurrection that we will be able to face what we face in this life. So pray with me so that I can do this well. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, you are good. God, you are good. And the things that you teach us and the things that you call us to understand help us to see how good and how amazing you are. I pray, Lord, today that you would help us to understand the resurrected life. I pray that you would help us to come into alignment with your word and to come into alignment with your thoughts and not our emotions and not our ideas. Father, we want to walk in the great hope that you have declared to us. But we openly admit we need your help. We need your help. Come in power today and teach us what it means to live a life hopeful for the resurrection. In your son's great name we pray. Amen. Now that we know what Paul's issue is. Now that we know what Paul is contending with in Corinth, specifically that people have rejected the resurrection of the dead, we can finally understand what the Apostle Paul is is intending to write to us in verses 1 through 4. He says this, "Now Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. And most people love to, I'm going to hit on this pretty heavy, most people love to say, well, here is a sum up of the gospel. I think we're missing the point, okay? Uh, Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. He goes on a little bit later and he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance, this verses three and four, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Although this is a gospel outline of sorts, right? Death, burial, and resurrection. It's a gospel outline of sorts. We should be very cautious in our attempts to uh, reduce the gospel to a few quick propositional truths. Now, I'm going to introduce two terms to you today. There's, a, there's propositional apologetics, propositional truth apologetics, and then there's presuppositional apologetics. Um, I believe that every human being operates under presuppositions. I believe that we go into the world preaching the gospel to a lost and dying world under the presupposition we believe them to be lost, Right? Presuppositional apologetics might not be a problem. It probably can be done wrong, just like anything. But, um, but propositional truth apologetics seems to be the American way to do things. We want to boil everything down to its most basic form, believing that if we can get this really cool phrase together, there's some sort of magic power that lies, lies behind our gospel presentation. Let me give you an example of propositional apologetics. Maybe you've heard this in your life. Maybe you were brought up uh, thinking this kind of apologetics. You walk up to somebody and you say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
The wages of sin are death. These are propositions, by the way. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. The wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now, just think about this for a second. You're walking up to somebody and you're telling them about the gospel for the first time. They've never been in church all their life, and that's common, actually, in the secular culture we live in. You walk up to them and you say, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin are death, and the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. What say you? And their response is, what are you talking about? <laughs> that's their response. There is no magic power in those propositions. There is truth in those propositions. There is truth in all of them, and they all are a part of the gospel. But if you were to walk up to a complete skeptic, they would say, so you're telling me, so what you're telling me is that I'm bad. Well, I think I'm a pretty good person. How many of you know that's the response of the world? I think I'm a pretty good person, and yet the same world that says I think I'm a pretty good person will also say, well, nobody's perfect. I don't understand why we're able to hold both of these positions. Well, nobody's perfect, but I'm a pretty good person. Okay, fine, I'll give you that, right? And then you say, but the gift of God is, uh, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The secularist is going to look at you and say, so a Jewish carpenter is somehow, 2,000 years ago, is somehow going to fix me. Somehow, this is, this is what it is. The, the truth is, church, that's not the gospel. That's not all of the gospel. And we have a real problem trying to boil everything down to these little bitty nutshell, nuts and bolts kind of approaches. And it actually doesn't do as much good, well, it doesn't do any good as I see it, okay? The model presented by Jesus and his disciples and the testimony of the entire New Testament when it comes to gospel declaration is for people to reason with people from the scriptures, read it, you'll see it over and over, and they reasoned with them from the scriptures over a period of time, that's what you're going to see about Christian apologetics in the scripture, they invite them to walk with Jesus vicariously through them, right? So imitate me as I imitate Christ because Jesus isn't walking this earth right now. But they invite people to walk with Jesus. They invite them to be baptized, to die to themselves, and to be born to new life. And they begin to teach them what it means to obey all that Jesus commanded. This is Christian apologetics. This is Christian gospel declaration. It's a relationship in which we establish the sinful state of mankind. How many of you know that before Christ Jesus, you were a dirty, rotten sinner? <laughs> so I wanted to say it that way because it's funner with the emphasis, right? But you were a sinner. You, you were in a helpless state. Christian biblical apologetics communicates that people were in a helpless state, that then we show them the promised solution that is found in Christ Jesus and all that that means, all that that means. Remember what Paul said? And this is of first importance, that Christ died according to the scriptures. If I, was, if I was hearing that for the first time, I would say, okay, a guy named Jesus died, but you just said according to the scriptures, which means there's a lot of baggage to what that means, right? If Jesus died according to the scriptures, it means he died to fulfill something. It means he died to answer something. All of that you need to tell me because I don't get it otherwise. You see it? So this is the kind of apologetic that the, that the Bible talks about. We explain Jesus' death, we explain his burial, we explain his resurrection, and how those things satisfy key parts of the story. Otherwise, we're just walking up to people telling them that somebody 2,000 years ago loved them, and we call him God. 
It's no wonder they think we're kooky. Through a relationship with that person and with Jesus, we can guide people into following him, teaching them what it means to turn from their sinful ways, teaching them what the Bible calls repentance, a turning and a pursuit of God. Paul's point in addressing uh, the resurrection apostasy he was dealing with was to say that Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection are of first importance. It's all about how you emphasize what he's saying. It was not, it was not some way for Paul to reduce this matter to the mere nuts and bolts of the gospel. Instead, what Paul is saying is that the death, burial, and resurrection are of first importance, not just one. You can't have one without the others, or as I would say, you can't have the others, the death and burial, without the one, without the resurrection. You cannot believe in, uh, in those. So, this is what Paul's doing. We see the idea. Now it's important to understand as Christians why. It's important to understand why. What our family has, uh, has been dealing with this past week is a loss, and I'm going to share with you more about this in the end, but it was because of a loss that uh, my heart went to this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? It's because of that loss that I looked at this. And when I, when I read it, God spoke to me as clear as God speaks to us, right? Read it again, Nathan. You, you're not seeing it. Read it again, read it again, read it again. And when I finally got it, all of a sudden I realized something that I've never been taught all my life. I've, I realize something that I've not heard, and I'm not suggesting that this is a new idea. I'm suggesting that this is the words that are written on the page. This is what Paul says. So I hope, I hope these whys will hit you right where you live. I believe that they will. Um, the, first, the first two, though, are kind of nuts and bolts things. They're kind of basic doctrines. So I hope you'll write them down, but the third one is really uh, weighing heavy on my heart. Number one, if there is no resurrection, then Christ, has, Christ also has not been raised. This is the case Paul makes. Paul says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, you can't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Because if there's no resurrection of the dead and Jesus died and rose, then there has to be a resurrection from the dead. If there is no resurrection, then Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. So this is a problem. The why, though, is that if Christ hasn't risen from the dead, our big problem is a sin problem. It's a sin problem. Paul says, if, you, if Christ has not risen from the dead, you are still in your sins. This is why Paul tells us that if we hope in Christ, in this life only, without resurrection, we are still to be pitied because our sins haven't gone anywhere. Why is that? Because without resurrection, Jesus merely came to offer us a new religion. He came to offer us a new thing. He was a new revolutionary. He was a new guy who came on and said, we don't like the Romans. And everybody said, woohoo, we don't like them either. And they tried to overthrow everything. Okay? Without his resurrection, he's just some other guy. Verse 56 through 57, the, the sting of death is sin. What is the sting of death? Sin. And if it is not beaten, if death is not beaten, sin still endures. But thanks to God, here's what the scripture goes on to say, but thanks to God who gives us victory through Christ Jesus, our Lord. How do we have victory through Christ Jesus? Because he rose from the dead. Because he's no longer in a grave somewhere. He's not just hanging out, 
okay? He is alive and doing mighty fine, I might add. If Christ is not raised from the dead, he doesn't afford us resurrection. And verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 15 should read that the last enemy is death and it is victorious. The last enemy is death and he wins. This might not be the exact uh, proper thing or proper time to say this, but do you know that death is the most unnatural thing we experience? It is the most unnatural thing we experience. You look at me and you say, that doesn't make sense, Nathan. Everybody dies. That wasn't what was supposed to happen. The natural thing was that we were to live on in, in communion with our Father. We were to live on in relationship with God. Death is most unnatural. And because death is most unnatural, death is awful. And you're allowed to say it, right? You're allowed to not like death. You're allowed to be mad at it. You're allowed to grieve it. You're allowed to be broken up about it because it's not natural. It is not the way God first intended things to be. So number one, if not for the resurrection, we are still in our sins. And number two, if not for the resurrection, this whole thing, this Christian life, it ain't worth our time. It is not worth our time. How many of you know that what we believe always affects how we live? How many of you know that? What we believe always affects how we live. We may suppress it over a period of time. But any of you who've lived long enough, uh, lived any measure of time in life, know that the longer you try to suppress something, the quicker you get exhausted. Right? You're like, I'm trying to live contrary to what God actually says, and you wear yourself out. This is the problem with trying to earn your way to salvation. Not only will you not get there, you'll be dog-tired. Before you, ever, uh, before you ever make it anywhere, right? Paul knows this idea. He knows that our belief affects our behavior. So he tells the people, if you're going to believe in the resurrection, or if you're not going to believe in the resurrection, you need to live consistent with your belief. Paul is quoting Isaiah 22, verse 13, when he says this. He says, if the dead are not raised, here's the quote from Isaiah, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Paul, as Amanda Dick introduced to our uh, elders group Tuesday night, Paul, or Isaiah, was the first one to invent the idea of YOLO, right? You only live once, YOLO, so, right? So you only live once. If not for the resurrection, YOLO, right? If not for the, re the resurrection, you only live once. If our hope is only in this life, even if it is in Christ, it's a pitiable hope. If there's no resurrection, then you're not drinking enough. If there's no resurrection, you're not eating enough. If, you're, if there's no resurrection, you are not partying and living life up enough. It's a fact. It's a fact. And the Apostle Paul would rather not just float around in the middle somewhere. He would rather you get you know, on the horse or get the heck off the horse, right? And so his point is either get on the horse of the resurrection and live the righteous life that God has called you to because he's empowered you to do it, or... If you don't believe in the resurrection, quit coming to church. Like, this doesn't make a lick of sense if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, does it? I mean, do you realize how early we get up in the morning? Do you, no, 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 no. Do you realize how early I get up in the morning with four little girls? I get up yesterday. Just throwing that out there, right? We get up early because of the blessed hope of Jesus and his resurrection. We're not drinking enough, we're not eating enough, we're not living enough if we refuse to believe in the resurrection. But for you and I, we do believe in the resurrection. 
Paul gives us instruction as well. Look at verses 33 and 34 with me. Verses 33 through 34 is something every professing Christian should take to heart. Number one, bad company corrupts good morals. Barney. Bad... (laughs) The funny part is I was talking about Tina. But anyway, (laughs) bad company, bad... (laughs) All of a sudden, Barney amend me. Anyway, bad company corrupts good character. Listen to this, please. Even if that company, that bad company, is a bad belief system, it will corrupt how you live. That's why what you believe matters. That's why what you believe is vitally important. That's why who you listen to is important. Bad company corrupts good morals, even if that company is a bad belief system. It will change how you live. It corrupts good morals. It determines that we, if we don't believe in the resurrection, it determines that we should live entirely uh, different lives. Paul goes on to say this in verses 34. Become sober-minded. Do you know what that means in the scripture? Become sober-minded? It means wake up. So I'm just going to say this on Sunday to some of you who are nodding off right now. (laughs) Become sober-minded. No, (laughs) right? It means wake up, wake up. And then the Apostle Paul does the greatest pastoral thing that I believe can be done. The Apostle Paul is the epitome, in my opinion, I know he's an apostle, I know he never refers to himself as a pastor, but I believe that he serves as the greatest example of a pastor for a couple of reasons. Number one, he taught two pastors how to be who they are, Timothy and Titus. He taught them everything that they needed to know, okay? But I believe it through his actions. Paul, in a most loving pastoral way, says, wake up and stop sinning. That is the most awesome pastor I've ever met. (laughs) Wake up and stop sinning. And then he goes on to this. He says, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Oh my goodness. A pastor just said, wake up, stop sinning. And yep, I intended to shame you. You guys might as well buckle in because the future's looking bright for Nathan. <laughs> anyway, right? I speak this to your shame. Our belief affects our behavior. Our belief affects our behavior. The only two options that we actually have set before us, they're not a myriad of options. There's only two options. There is we don't believe in the resurrection and YOLO, right? You don't believe in the resurrection, YOLO, you only live once, and you're, you've wasted a lot of time this morning. Or you believe in the resurrection, you believe in the resurrection, and you put the old man to death, you stop sinning, and you wake up. That's powerful, isn't it? Paul writes to the Ephesians, I love this too, this is total extra credit for you. Paul Paul writes to the Ephesians, and in verse 32 of 1 Corinthians 15, he calls them wild beasts. That's the most awesome title for anybody, right, ever. So he he calls them the wild beasts that he wrestled with in Ephesus. But to those same wild beasts, those same heathens that came to know Jesus, Ephesians 5, 11 through 14 says this, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful 
even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, I say, awake, sleeper, arise from the dead, for Christ will shine on you. Awake from the dead. Why? Because it's resurrection. It's resurrection life that we're called to. Paul says, awake, live what you believe, a hope-filled, forward-looking, resurrected life. Now, I just want to address something interesting about Paul's teaching. There's a part in Paul's teaching in Romans in which Paul says things like this. He says, he says the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Now, I've made the case a thousand times. I stand by it because... You can read it for yourself and see what the Bible says. Paul is contrasting the old man to the new man. Okay? He's contrasting the old man to the new man. But when Paul says, the things I want to do, I've said this before, those are good things, right? Those are holy things, righteous things. The things I want to do, I don't do or I can't do, right? The things that I don't want to do, that's the bad stuff, I keep on doing. Do you know what Paul said there? Effectively, he said, all I ever do is bad because I can't do anything else, right? That Apostle Paul who said that has to be talking about the old man versus the new man. Otherwise, he is absolutely foolish for saying stop sinning here because the things I want to do, I can't do. I can't do it. I can't stop sinning. Paul, you're misguided. I think you spoke wrong, right? No, Paul did not speak wrong. We are to stop sinning. We are to awake to new life. We are to think with resurrected minds, and that will cause us to live godly lives. So here's where we've come so far. Without the resurrection, we're still in our sin. Without the resurrection, we're wasting our time. And lastly, without the resurrection, and this is so important, Without the resurrection, all of our pain, all of our toil, all of our putting sin to death, all of the things that we do in this life, the journey that we're on, it's all in vain. Without the resurrection. Without the resurrection, not without the sovereignty of God. And I'm going to explain this in just a second. It's without the resurrection that we have a tremendous, tremendous problem. That great scripture in Romans 8, 28. That says God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Without the resurrection, it's a lie. Without the resurrection, it's not actually true. And you can't hold on to that. But in the resurrection or with the resurrection, it changes absolutely everything. Pastors like to say this, especially pastors of a reformed persuasion, like to say that what we ought to do is we ought to rest or trust in the sovereign nature of God. And that is good. We should believe that God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. But I've heard those same pastors take it so far as to say that when bad things happen to people, when, when sin takes over or when uh, calamity or whatever these things are, when they hit the sinner, what, they hit the human being, what they should do is that they should just take a deep breath and know the only way you can get through pain is to know God is still in control. I get what you're trying to say. But think about this. Let's say you were a mom or a dad, and you had a son, and he was going off to fight a war, okay? And he went to fight that war, and he lost his life fighting that war. He's off in another country, and he dies at the hands of the foreign invaders or the enemy, okay? He dies. 
and you get a letter that comes, a person comes to your door and delivers you a letter and says, we're sorry for your loss. We're sorry for your loss. But if we can comfort you in anything, here's what we'll comfort you with. The president is still the president. What? That does not help me at all. It does not help me at all. You telling me that the president's still in control of our country didn't save my son. It didn't give me peace. It doesn't give me peace. And so many pastors want to get out there and say, listen, I know that your child has been lost. I know that life has been hell on you. I know that these things are going. But don't worry, God's in control. And in the midst of this, somebody goes, how does that help me? I know God's good. I know he's better than a president. I know that God is, God is all things. He's eternal. But that's not helping me. It's because they haven't preached the hope. The hope that gives us peace is the resurrection. And I'll prove it to you this morning. I'm sure you know how it feels to be without hope. But imagine no hope of redemption ever in your life. Imagine that true justice will never be given to you. Imagine that the pain you've suffered emotionally, physically, mentally, imagine it's all meaningless. Imagine when you get to heaven, you say, God, what about? And he says, well, we've just wiped it off the ledger. God is a God of justice. Make no mistake, church. He doesn't wipe things off the ledger. He, that Whatever was uh, cleared from the ledger was bought at a precious price through blood on a cross. He does not forget about sin. He, people pay for it, and Jesus did. That's the gospel message. But if you get to heaven and everything is just meaningless, it's going to feel awful. Without resurrection, that's exactly what life is. It is pointless. But through the resurrection, through the reality of what is of first importance, according to Paul, through resurrection, all of life and all of its pain, all has purpose. Go to verse 36, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 36. Paul goes on to say, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And here's where our hearts will jump within us. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that, and that what you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but you sow a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. And he simply uses this because they're an agricultural people, right? Paul then spends a little bit of his time communicating that the future glory, future glory is up to God. I want you to, I want you to think about this, ponder this, spend some time. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says that the star differs in glory to glory. The stars differ in glory to glory. Guess what? Same is true for you. Same is true for me. When we get to heaven, it's not all equality and all whatever. We, we share a different glory, or we, we have a different glory. We vary from glory to glory just like the stars. And it's amazing because that glory is given by God. It is from the glory which is imperishable, and it's given by God to be a glorious, imperishable thing. There's something amazing about what's going to happen when we get to heaven. So he talks about uh, this glory, and then in verse 42, he puts it all together. He says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. Varying from glory to glory, so also is the resurrection from the dead. Just like the seed planted has to die to be raised in glory, so do we and all of our issues. 
Everything we've ever faced in this life has to be sown into the ground of this world. It has to die. And then guess what happens? It is reaped in glory. All of your pain, all of your suffering, all of the injustices you feel inside of this life. Guess what Paul says? He says it's a seed. It gets planted in the ground, it has to die, but it will be raised glorious. It is sown a perishable body. How many of you can give me a big amen that this body is perishable? Hallelujah, right? I don't know what happened from 29 to 39, but I can't stand up without my knees hurting, and I, there's a defect. I want to return this old thing. Anyway. It's stupid, right? It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. But look at what Paul keeps saying. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. What's sown in dishonor? All of my life. All of my life has been sown in dishonor. It's been sown in a way that was not, was not pleasing to the Father. But I don't have to worry. Well, it was sown in dishonor, but God is sovereign. I don't get it. It was sown in dishonor, and that which is sown perishable, that which is sown in dishonor, is raised imperishable and is raised with glory and honor. That gives me hope. That changes my perspective on absolutely everything in life. It is sown in weakness. How many of you can raise your hand to the fact that you're sown in weakness? Weakness in everything. Weakness in attempts at holiness, weakness in attempts to love other people, weakness in every area of our life. But guess what? We boast in our weakness. Why? Because it's sown in weakness, but raised in what? Power. Say that with me. It's raised in power. That's what we're raised with. This gives me new life. This gives me hope. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. Paul says earlier, if the dead are not raised, then why do I face danger every hour? Paul says, if we don't believe in the resurrection, I need to stop preaching the gospel because people want to kill me. And so should you if you don't believe in the resurrection. This is stop wasting your time. Paul alludes to this question and answer too. If the dead are not raised, why do I die daily? Why am I dying every day? And Paul dies for those he loves. He dies for the Christians because he lays his life on the line for them. But he also dies the way we all understand it. And that is he puts sin to death every day. If not for the resurrection, why fight? Why fight? We might as well just wing it. No more winging it now. Okay. Paul's point is that in the resurrection of the dead, and only through this doctrine... There is meaning to life. Only through this truth can we die daily for any eternal purpose. Only through this doctrine can we endure persecution. Only through the resurrection will we use putting sin to death or being mistreated, maligned, hurt, all of those things will we view them with any purpose. Because they don't make sense otherwise. Why do bad things happen to God's people? Because of resurrection glory. That's why bad things happen to God's people. Why? Because, make no mistake, church, he is producing in you an eternal weight of glory. You are moving from glory, that which is perishable, to that which is imperishable. 
That which is sown in weakness to that which is raised in power. God, everything that's happening to you in this life, everything that you go through caused by God or caused by the devil or caused because you're just stupid sometimes, it is all for glory. It will all produce glory if we will trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul ends his entire, uh, his entire chapter with this. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. Say that with me, church. Not in vain. Say it again. Not in vain in the Lord. Nothing that you're going through is in vain inside of the Lord. So Monday morning, we got a phone call that Michael, who we've been praying for for quite some time, for 10 and a half months, um, passed away. He lost the battle to cancer, right? But as my mom had posted on one of the Facebook threads, um, he won the war, right? He's, he's with Jesus. And I thought about that, and I've been praying for Michael, and I, I firmly trust that God's will is perfect, and I don't always understand it, but I firmly trust it. And a lot of times my prayer is, thy will be done, right? Um, but I was mad. You understand what I mean? I was mad about it in particular. And um, in my misunderstanding of God's word, I, I looked at something that he said as a mocking statement more than as a comforting statement. I remembered in my head, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? And what I wanted to say, and well, I did, because that's how I talk to God, was I'll show you where death's victory is. I'll gladly show you where the sting is. You ask the question, I'll give you the answer, Right? God, death's victory is right here. Matthew's, or Michael's gone. Death's victory is right here. It's pain, it's sting, is real. Ask the family. Look on, her, look on his dad's face. Look on his mom's face. I'll show you where death's victory is. I'll show you where death's sting is. Of course, that was the foolishness of a man. But God said, I'm afraid you haven't read it correctly. So why don't you read it again? How many of you have heard that at a funeral? Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's the stupidest thing we've ever said to people because we don't read the whole Bible passage. Look at what it says here, verse 54. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable. When is that? Well, when it is, right? When will this mortal put on immortality? When that takes place, underline this word in your Bible, then will come about the saying. You and I don't have the saying yet. You don't have the saying. I don't have the saying. Then will come about the saying, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? This side of heaven, we try to make it to where we don't grieve over people's loss. Death is unnatural. We should grieve. We should grieve deeply. We should look at it and say, I feel the pain. I feel the sting all the time. I should also believe that's not the end because I believe in resurrection, but it hurts right now. You know who is saying, oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? My young friend, Michael, 
who on the other side of this thing looks, and he was a mocking little guy at times. He's just fascinating, right? He's a mocking little guy. And I can picture Michael going, death, (laughs) where's your victory, right? Where's your sting? Michael is the one who gets to say this. Why? He was sown imperishable. Or he's sown perishable. He's raised imperishable. He was sown in weakness. He's raised in power and glory. What do we do as Christians? We rest in the belief of the resurrection. Otherwise, we will not get through these things. We will not. We will not get through these things if we say, well, God is in control. God is in control. He is in control. But let me tell you his control. Resurrection. (laughs) That's his control. His, His control is he wins. His control is death is a joke to him. Death is a joke to him. Church, I I don't know what you're going through. I don't know if you've endured loss. I don't know if you're looking at your life and saying, I've been through a ton of pain. But I'm here to tell you that although God is sovereign and although he is in control, the hope that you have is everything that you're going through right now is being sown in weakness to be raised in glory, to be raised in power, to be raised in strength. Take heart. Take heart. Not in some obscure doctrine or philosophy. Take heart in the fact that Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, put death in its place. He won the victory so that we have hope in that same victory. Amen? God is good. God is good. All of us are struggling in this life. And all of us are scratching our heads at times going, this is, this is pointless. This doesn't make any sense. I'm tired of this. The answer is resurrection. That's why if you believe in Christ in this life only, you're to be pitied. Because without the resurrection, there's no hope. Without the resurrection, there is no hope. Without resurrection, there is no hope. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.